You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. First Peter 3 is where we are. I missed you last week. I was in Kenya, of all places. It was an incredible experience. Um, very uh, heartbreaking at times. We were in Nairobi and in the middle of the largest slum in Africa. 1.3 million people live in it. Average income, probably on a monthly basis, or on a daily basis, probably about a dollar a day. Monthly, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to maybe $45, just heartbreaking. And yet at the same time, it was very humbling and very hopeful to know that the gospel can, can make its way even to, to that and give hope even in that. And so, um, incredible experience. Um, KC, thanks for preaching last week. I know you did a great job, and um, so thanks for the hard work that, that went into that. First Peter 3 is where we are. First Peter 3. Let, let me do a quick catch-up. Two weeks ago, we, we started First um, Peter 3 and really just tried to take a step back and ask the foundational question about marriage. And we tried to ask and answer the question, what is marriage for? Because if you lose sight of the answer to that question, it makes it impossible to have a good marriage. Impossible. So, so you have to know, what, what is marriage for? And we answered it in three ways. One, we said that marriage is for the glory of God. That marriage exists more for God than it does for you. That marriage is a temporary arrangement meant to reflect a, an eternal reality, namely God. So it's more for God than it is for you. That it exists for the glory of God. And secondly, we said that marriage exists for your good. And when we use the word good, we have a specific meaning for that. Not your temporal happiness, but for your holiness. That God uses marriage as one of God's most useful tools in his hands to make you more like Jesus. And lastly, we said that marriage is meant to be a gospel display. It is for a gospel display. It's one of the richest metaphors in the Bible and pictures in the Bible of the gospel. So so we said that that marriage is meant to display Christ's covenant love to us. And and the wife in marriage is meant to display the church's response to to Christ's initiating love, showing the world that Jesus is ultimately satisfying. So so marriage is meant to be a gospel display. Now with that, let me follow that up with this and then we'll we'll get on into 1 Peter 3. Some of you right now in your marriage, it is crisis mode. And for those of you who are in crisis mode in your marriage, I want to give you this encouragement. You need to let us know ASAP, like not tomorrow or Tuesday or Thursday, but ASAP. And we need to get you good biblical counseling to start walking beside you and get under good authority so God can start to work some of these things out in your marriage. But, but that needs to happen like today. And others in the room, you're not in crisis mode, but there are cracks that are starting to form in your marriage. And guess where cracks go? They eventually go to crisis. And so if there are cracks that have started to form in your marriage, don't, don't be foolish and sweep that under the rug and act like those don't exist in your marriage. But it would be wise for you to start today to start figuring out what is causing those cracks and creating those cracks so that you can start working together with your wife, with your husband to start solving that problem. So you need to let us know today so we can get you some good biblical counseling. Listen, there is no shame in biblical counseling. It is discipleship on steroids. That's what it is. And there, there's times that all of us need that. So there's no shame in that. So, so don't hide behind shame or guilt or whatever else. We don't expect your marriage to be perfect. So we want to be used by God to help in, in those areas. Okay, now with that said, um, we're in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, first six verses are difficult words. This is the reason we preach through books of the Bible. Because if we didn't preach through books of the Bible, I would probably be tempted not to preach these six verses. Especially these verses that mention things like submission. 
I really don't want to get killed today, right? And so I would probably avoid those things. But when we, but because we preach through books of the Bible, here's what it forces me to do. It forces me to be a person who is going to take every word and teach you every word uh, of God's word. And so that's where we are. And so ladies in the room, I know that there's going to be some things in here that offend 21st century ears. And you've got a decision you've got to make today. Either you will stand over the word or you will stand under the word. All of us in here, that's your decision today. And so specifically for the ladies, you'll stand over the word and and you'll put your view on the word, trying to make it mean what you want it to mean, or you'll stand under the word and allow the Bible to press you into the image of Jesus. And my hope and my prayer for the ladies in the room is that you will stand under the word today. And if God convicts you, if he starts to kind of rouse up in you where, where sin is and unbelief and idolatry, where all those things exist in you, then my hope today is that you would be ready to turn to God and run to God and repent before God. Amen? Here we go. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject, that's a command, to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, so here's what I want to do today. I, I want to use or allow this text to, to give light to four biblical characteristics, four biblical marks of womanhood. I want to allow this text to show you four things that make up a godly woman, four characteristics that make up a godly woman, and hopefully encourage our ladies in the room toward that today. Okay, so four characteristics. Here's the first one. Look at verse five. Verse five is foundational to these six verses. If you miss verse five, it's impossible to do these six verses. So verse five says this, for this is how the holy women, and you might underline these four words, who hoped in God, who hoped in God. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Here is Mark one of what it means to be a biblical woman, a biblical womanhood. Goes like this. Biblical women, biblical women, that godly women, that they are the, the sort of women that put their hope in God. They place their hope in God. This is what it means to be a biblical woman. Mark one, they place their hope in God. Okay. So, so think about what this means. P- Peter is saying that this is what it looks like to be the sort of women, the sort of godly women that God would have you be. This is what it looks like. You put your hope all in God. Okay, now now hear the the, the overarching theme here. This is what enables everything else that Peter's about to say to ladies. If you miss this, you miss it all. If you miss this, it's impossible to live in any of these commands, any of these things that Peter is about to say. This is the thing that turns the key to everything else in this passage. Peter's saying your hope, ladies, has to be in God. Now, what does it mean to put your hope in God? That, That means that you are looking to God for life, for purpose, for satisfaction, for significance, that you're looking to God to make your life tick. You're looking to God for the substance of your life. You're looking to God for everything you need for life and for godliness. That's what it means to hope in God. 
And Peter is saying, listen, your hope cannot be in a house. Your hope cannot be in your health. Your hope cannot be in in your external appearance or your waistline. Your hope cannot be in financial security. Your hope cannot be in your kids. And your hope cannot be in your husband. Your hope has got to be in God. This is the point he's making. That ladies, your hope has got to be directed toward God. That you're looking to God for everything you need out of life. That this is what it means to hope in God. Okay, now... One of the persistent problems in many of our marriages in the room, and I'm going, to, I'm going to use this from the lady's perspective here. It also applies to the guy. From the lady's perspective, one of the, the major problems we have in marriages in the room is our ladies are hoping in their husband. That they're hoping in their husband. And listen, the culture pulls so strong in that direction. I mean, if you just take the general genre of movies called romantic comedies, it says it all, doesn't it? Romantic comedies are romance novels put into to video. That's what they are. And there is an underlying assumption to romantic comedies that can absolutely destroy your soul. Okay, so I, I'll just sum up romantic comedies with one scene out of Jerry Maguire. Y'all seen that? Y'all remember the end of the movie? He walks into the room of bitter, kind of bitter ladies in there. Um, Renee Zellweger is in there. And he's just kind of had this big moment in his business, all that. And he comes into this, this last scene in the movie where he's looking at, at Renee. And you remember what he says? You complete me. And, and then she, she looks back at him and says, shut up, shut up. You had me at hello. Do you remember that? He runs across the room. They hug, embrace, they kiss. The whole thing looks great. And this is where every woman in the audience is crying over beside her husband. The big awe, the heart is melted. That whole thing has just happened. Okay, now, now think about this scene in that movie. It seems very harmless, doesn't it? You complete me. It seems very har- It might even seem good and right to some of us in the room, but, but listen to me here. That is poison for your soul. Do you know that? That is poison for you? I, I like how one pastor said it. He said, that is set woman after woman after woman on the search for the unicorn. Something that does not exist. Okay, it's, it's true. Do you see that? The, ladies, look at me here. I want you to look at me in the face here. There is not a man on this planet that can complete you. Do you know that? And see, if you put your hope in a man like that, you are going to live disappointed. They, they can't do that. And I'll just put it in the context of Laura and I. Laura is a great gift from God to me. She is an incredible wife. She is so precious to me. But she cannot complete me. That is an impossibility. There's no way that can happen. I cannot complete Laura. That is an impossibility. She was never meant to carry that sort of weight. She was not designed by God to do that sort of a thing for me. And if I start looking at her for that, if I start hoping in her for that, here's what it ultimately does. It will crush her. And ladies, if you're looking for, for you, at your husband, hoping in your husband like that, if you're looking at your husband thinking, surely he will complete me, surely he will, he cannot carry that weight. And if you keep putting that on him, here's what eventually happens. He's going to run as hard as he can to a hobby or to something else just to get out from under that expectation because he was not meant by God to, to carry that. It's a crushing expectation. Your man is a sinner. Do you know that? Hopefully, yeah, amen, that's true. We would all agree with that, right? Now, here, here's what that means for you, though. 
that there are going to be times where intentionally and unintentionally he wrongs you, sins against you, he lets you down. And if your hope is in him, that is a dis- like a life destroying, a heart destroying moment for you. Because it was never intended to be that. Your, your hope was never intended to be placed in him for that. Okay, now this is how I, I pray often for both Laura and I. And, and this sounds kind of weird when you first hear it, but I, I pray this all the time for us, that we would stop needing so much from each other. That, that I would not look at Laura trying to get her to fill me, to complete me. I, I would stop looking at Laura for those things. I would stop hoping in Laura and that she would stop hoping in me. And our hope would be directed toward God. See, it's okay for me to look at Laura and say, I would love to have some things for me. I'd love, I I want these things. But it's wrong when I close my hand around those wants and make those needs. See, as soon as I start needing things from her, I've just stepped across the line of idolatry and I'm starting to hope in her. See, it's just fine for me to desire things from Laura. But if if I reach my hand around that desire and close my fist around it, and demand it, it's just crossed over into idolatry, and I'm hoping in her for things that I should not be hoping in her for. And Peter is saying, listen, your hope has got to be in God, not in a person, not in a kid, not in your health, not in your house, not in your financial security. Your hope has got to be in God. Ladies, do you hear that? Now think about the fruit of how this works itself out. See, when your hope is not in your husband, but in God, when you stop needing so much from him, then watch what happens in those seasons, in those moments where he is not giving you anything, where he is doing nothing to complete you, nothing. You know what it allows you to do when you're not needing all that stuff from him, when you're hoping in God, not him. It frees you and liberates you to serve him and to love him and to give to him even when he's not giving to you. See, if your hope is in your husband, it's impossible to give to him when he is not giving to you. But when you're looking at him to complete you, when he's not completing you, it's impossible for you to serve him. So first thing Peter says, here's the mark of what it means to be a biblical woman. Your hope is in God, ladies. Let me just ask you that question this morning. Is your hope in God? Is it in God? Or is it in your husband, in your kids, in a million other? Is your hope in God? Peter's saying this is the first mark of what it means to be a biblical woman. He's got some more though. Let's look at verse five. Peter says this, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Verse six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And just to to get the edge knocked off of that, that does not mean that she's like calling him like Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord. It's not that Lord, right? It would be a term of like endearment or respect. It's like saying, sir. So that word sir could be trans or that word Lord could be translated sir there, right? So I just want you to make sure you've got that clear. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And then it says this, and you are are her children. If you do good, and I want you to underline these these words. If you do good and here, these three words, do not fear. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Here's the second characteristic of what a biblical woman, kind of the makeup of a biblical woman is godly women are fearless. Godly women, they're they're fearless. Okay, now this is what a hope in God produces in you. A hope in God unleashes and it produces and it creates in you a fearlessness. See, when your hope is in God, you become like this Proverbs um, 31 woman. 
So in verse 25, it says that she looks, she looks at the future at times to come and she laughs at them. She's not scared of them. See, when your hope is in God, you can look at all the dangers and the craziness and the chaos of life, all the potential threats, all the dangers, toils, and snares. You can look at all of those along life's way and you can laugh at them. This is what a hope in God produces. It produces this fearlessness. See, see a fearless woman is a, God, is a woman who, who knows her Bible, knows her God, has a good theology of the sovereignty of God and of the fatherhood of God. That this sovereign God who controls all things is a good dad to me who flexes his muscle, right? Flexes it to control all things for my good. He's working all things for my good. He's a good dad for me. He has got good things for me. That's a fearless woman who hopes in that God, who knows that God, who places her faith in that God. There's a fearlessness there. So ladies, let me ask you the question. Are you eaten up with an anxiety and a worry and like this what if syndrome? Like what if my husband does this? What if my kids, what if this happens? What, what if we lose all of what, what Are you just eaten up and paralyzed by the what ifs? Now I want you to make this connection. If that's you in the room, worry, anxiety, what ifs, if those paralyze you, if that dominates how you think about life, if it shades everything that you're doing, make this connection. The problem is not worry. The problem is not anxiety. The problem is not the what ifs. The problem is your hope is in something other than God. See, what produces anxiety is hoping in, in fickle things. What produces anxiety is when our hope is in things like houses, like husbands, like kids that could be here one day and gone the next. They're fickle. They're shaky sand. It's a sandy foundation. And when your hope is in those things, well, you should be worried. Why wouldn't you be worried? They could leave that fast. But see, when your hope is in God, then you've got a rock solid foundation, an unmovable foundation. God's not changing on you. He doesn't go away tomorrow. Do you see? Do you see the connection there? If you want to sever the fruit of, of of worry and anxiety and being paralyzed by fear, if you want to sever that down at the root, if you want to cut that fruit off down at the root, here's where the root is: your hope has to be in God. A hope in God produces the second mark, this fearlessness. So let me ask the ladies in the room: Is there a fearlessness about you? Like when you think about the future, is there a fearlessness? Is there this? Proverbs 31 thing where you would look at the times to come and, and like her, you would laugh at them. See, Peter's saying this is a mark of what it means to be a biblical woman, that there is a fearlessness deep in your soul. Okay, he, he's got another one though here. Look at verse three. Look at verse three here. Peter says this, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, so let me try to unpack what Peter is saying here. Peter is not saying that that women should just let themselves go. Don't care about what you look like. Who who cares? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that a woman should not, and some people believe this, that some people believe that Peter is saying that a lady should not braid their hair, they shouldn't put on gold jewelry, they shouldn't do any of those things. And that is not what Peter's saying. If you believe that, God, that he's saying no gold jewelry and no braiding, you also have to believe that Peter is saying women should not wear clothes. And I just want to affirm, 
We believe Peter's saying you should wear clothes, all right? Ladies, please do not come without clothes. We want you clothed when you come. Okay, so the point is not that you should let yourself go. The point is not that you shouldn't care at all about your external appearance. The point is not that you shouldn't take care. That's not the idea. You should take care of yourself. Okay, so let me just put it that way. You should do those things. The point of the passage, the point of these verses, is Peter is saying that you should not be overly obsessed with the external. That you should have a proper view of the importance of your external appearance and the importance of your internal beauty. And you should not be overly obsessed with your internal or your external, but you should be overly obsessed with your internal beauty. That your focus should be on what matters the most. You should be most concerned with what is most precious. Do you see what Peter is saying? He is saying that ladies, you should not be caught up in external appearance. You should be caught up in cultivating a depth in your soul. That's what you should be caught up with. There should be a seriousness about you in developing godly character. And becoming a beautiful person on the inside of you. And listen, I I want to take a second just to sympathize with ladies in the room because there is such a strong pull in our culture to physical external beauty, isn't there? It's impossible to escape. You can be in line at the grocery store and you look down and there's magazines there and and they have these airbrushed people on there. I mean, they're, they're as thick as toothpicks, right? And airbrushed to perfection, plastered on these magazines. And listen, it is a ridiculous image of beauty. Ridiculous. That is not what the Bible considers beautiful. And so I, I, I want to be sympathetic with, I know that for ladies in the room, this is why things um, like all sorts of, of issues come around body image from bulimia and anorexia and all these different things come around this. And so I want to be sympathetic with that because I know culture pulls and it's so hard in that way. But I want these verses to remind our ladies in the room that your external adornment is not most important. Your internal adornment is. I want you to hear these words of Peter. Don't be overly obsessed with what you look like on the external. Be overly obsessed with what you look like internally. That's his point here. Okay, let me give you two reasons why this is so important for our ladies. First, look at verse four. Do you see the word imperishable? See, he calls this hidden person of the heart, developing that, that sort of beauty internally. He calls that an imperishable beauty. It's imperishable. So so wouldn't it make sense to focus your attention on what is imperishable? Maybe you could think about this imagery with me. Think about eternity. However you have to get this in your mind, think about the length and and the vastness of forever. Okay, now this is how beauty, external and internal works. You're born and and you might have 20 or 25 years at your max of like external beauty. That's your max. And then what happens after that? external beauty for the rest of eternity begins to fade. You know that? So, so you've got this bright flower that comes out and then you've got a wilting flower for the rest of eternity physically. Okay. Now, now keep with me though. Keep with me. Here's what happens after that. And and, and maybe I should use this in in men. That would probably help this illustration a lot more, wouldn't it? So, so you've got this, this bright flower that comes out and, and then this, this wilting for the rest of eternity. And on the other side, now listen to imperishable beauty, this inner person. See, when, when you're first born, the imperishable you, the, the inner you, it's hard to see, isn't it? 
It's difficult. Like even right now, it's difficult to know how how do you look internally? Like what is the makeup of your heart? Is it beautiful? Is it not beautiful? But here's what happens for the rest of eternity. As your physical appearance fades, your internal beauty becomes in focus. And for the rest of eternity, do you know what people are going to see in you? Not your external beauty. That's not what they're going to see. It is the flower that is wilted. What they're going to see is this imperishable beauty inside of you, this hidden person of the heart. So, so here's Peter's logic. Wouldn't it make sense for you in all the time you have now to be developing this internal and imperishable beauty as opposed to being overly obsessed with your external appearance? See, he's saying this is imperishable. For all of eternity, this is what's going to be in focus for you. However long eternity is, you've got 25 years of external. For the rest of that, it is in focus, in view, your internal beauty. He says it's imperishable. Okay, he gives a second reason for it, though. Look at the end of verse 4. It's imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then he says this, which in God's sight is very precious. To the hidden person of the heart, it is precious in the sight of God. Okay, now the question becomes, what does it mean when it says a gentle and a quiet spirit? Now, some people would have you believe that that means if you're a lady, that you need to suppress your personality, that you need to become a wallflower. That is not what Peter's talking about. Um, I, I think what Peter, his primary point in saying that is he's taking a word, gentleness and, and meekness. And that word was often used to describe Jesus in the Gospels. And I think big picture wise, here's what Peter is doing. He is saying, do you see what Jesus looks like? Ladies, I'm calling you to make your insides look like that. I'm calling you to develop and cultivate your soul so it looks like that. Do you see the life of Jesus? Do you see the meekness of Jesus? Do you, you see how, how Jesus, um, do you see the characteristics of Jesus? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit that is displayed in Jesus? I'm calling you to cultivate your soul and your heart so it looks like Jesus, like that. And let's just take the fruit of the Spirit. For you to be cultivating your heart so that love is clearly seen. That there is a growing love in you. That there is a growing, how about this one, joy, an abiding and a deep joy in you. That there is an abiding and a deep peace in your heart. Peter's saying, cultivate that. That there is this beautiful kindness in you. That there is this gentleness that marks everything that you do. That there is this faithfulness that's been cultivated in your heart. Do you see what Peter's saying? That there's this self-control that's, that's been cultivated. P- Peter's saying, focus your attention on that. And, and do you see what he, he says? That's what's precious. See, when God looks at you, what is most precious to God is not your external adornment. What is most precious to God is the, is the hidden person of the heart. Is this internal you, the real you. And, and Peter's saying, fo- focus your attention on that. Maybe I could ask the ladies this question. Do you worry more about what the eyes of man would say about you? What, what is precious in the eyes of man? Or do you worry most about what is precious in the eyes of God? Th- this hidden person of the heart. And, and Peter is saying, ladies, worry most about what is precious to God. B- be serious about cultivating depth in your soul. Wisdom in your soul. The fruits of the spirit in your soul. Be, be serious about that. Okay, now I, I, I want to take just a two-second caveat here. And th- there is an um, a, a implication of this text that lurks in the background. It's not Peter's primary point, but, but this implication lurks in the background. And this implication has to do with modesty. 
and, and how you dress. And specifically, I want to take a second to address this with our ladies in the room. That I think in this passage, there, there is lurking in the background from Peter a calling for you towards modesty in the way that you dress. And so ladies, I want to ask you a couple of questions as it deals with this. Number one, how would you answer this question? What is the purpose of clothes? What's the purpose of them? Okay, now I, I want to tell you what the purpose is not. The purpose of clothes is not to draw attention to you. The, the purpose of clothes is not to draw the attention of eyes to certain places in your body, on your body. That's not the intention of clothes. Uh, listen to, to one pastor as he tries to give um, some substance to, to what are clothes for? How should you be thinking about clothes? This is what he says. He says, clothes are, and this is going to be on the screen for you. Clothes are not meant to make people think of what's under the clothes. Okay, ladies, do you hear that? Clothes are not meant to make people think about what is underneath them. Then he goes on to say this. Clothes are meant to direct attention to what's not under them. For instance, merciful hands that serve others in the name of Christ, beautiful feet that carry the gospel where it's needed, and the brightness of a face that has beheld the glory of Jesus. Okay, that, that's what your clothes are for. And, and if you are a person who, when you think about what you're wearing, if you think in terms about what, what would draw attention to me, what would draw the attention of, of men my way, I just want to humbly but, but boldly tell you that you need to repent of that. And that needs to be a habit that stops in your life. Okay, now, now I want to kind of address the second question here. And the second question is, when, when you get dressed, you're in front of the mirror and you get dressed, what should you be thinking? And I think there's several maybe ways to answer that, but I want to give you one thing that, that I want you to think as that's happening, as you're putting clothes on. You need to be thinking this question. Is what I'm putting on, will it serve the men around me? Will it serve people around me? Okay, ladies, I want to make sure you know this. Every man in this room to varying degrees has an issue with lust, with wondering eyes, with a wondering mind. There is not a man in here that doesn't in some, on some level deal with that. And so I, I'm going to plead with you on behalf of the men in here who most of them, listen, are really trying to pursue God and to put lust and those things to death in their heart. I'm going to ask you to serve them in the way that you dress. And if you need help with that, I'm going to give you some, some advice here. Ask your dad. And, and, and if not that, ask your husband. If you're, if you're married, ask your husband. I think they'll be honest with you. I think they'll tell you what that does to them. Right. And so I, I'm going to ask you to make sure that, that when you dress, you are thinking in terms of would this serve the people around me? And listen, if it doesn't serve the men around you, then get a new wardrobe. It is worth it. it however much it costs, it is worth it to get one that would serve people around you. OK, so, so in this, there is this embedded call to modesty. OK, big picture. Let me take a step back. Characteristic number three. Ladies, it's a call to focus on the internal adornment, not the external. Do you see that? that? That what is precious to God is most important to us, not what is precious to man. Okay, last one. And the most controversial. Um, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. Now skip down to verse 5. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So, so this is the command Peter is giving in this text. And it carries the force of an imperative, of a command. He's informing ladies specifically of their role in the context of marriage. And and this command goes like this. He is calling ladies to submit to their husband, to seek to submit to their husband. That's the call here, that godly women seek to submit to their husband. Okay, now this is where ladies need to remind you to unclench your fist, put the gun down, please don't shoot, right? Okay, now here's what I want to do. I, I want to take a second to, to try to work through this. And I want, to, I want to try to give you the context of what submission means for all of us in the room. And I want to clarify what it means specifically for wives. And I want to commend it to you. So let's start with the context of what submission means. Look at the first word in verse 1 of chapter 3. You see it? The word likewise. Here's what that is telling us about the context of this command to submit. That submission is not unique to ladies. Submission is is a call on every person in this room on your life. There's not a single person on the planet that gets out of the biblical call to submit. And let me just kind of run through different ways that we're all called to submit. Number one, we are all called to submit to Jesus first and foremost. That's a call on every person in here's life. We are called to submit to Jesus. And and we can go down the list of things here. Number two, if you go back um, just a a chapter into chapter two there in verse 13, you're going to see that Peter says we're all called to submit to the governing authorities, emperors, governors. We're called to submit to the laws of the land. That is every person in this room, you are called to submit in that way. If you keep reading in chapter two in verse 18, it says that um, slaves should submit or subject themselves to their masters. Okay, so, so in, I think that the most appropriate kind of overlap for us would be the context of the workplace. That Peter is saying in the context of the workplace that you are to submit to your employer. That you're to submit to your boss. That's a calling on every person that works in this room. Is a calling to submit to your employer. And, and there's, there's other kind of ways this, this works itself out. In Hebrews 13, there's a calling on every Christian to submit to their church leaders. Uh, Hebrews 13 says that your church leaders are going to give an account for you. And so that you're supposed to submit to them. That's the call on every Christian's life to be submissive to their church leaders. Mine too. Uh, on all of our lives, that, that call is there. In Ephesians 6, there is a call for, pa- for uh, kids, for children, to submit and obey their parents, to honor their parents. That's a call on every one of our lives in the room. So I want you to hear this. Submission is not unique to ladies. The most powerful person on the planet, whoever that is, they are called to submit, just like you are, just like I am. It is not a unique thing. Submission is a universal thing. Now, in this passage, in chapter 3, Peter is saying, but in the context of all that, this universal call to submit, there is a unique role that God has placed on women and a unique responsibility God has placed on women in the context of the home, in the context of their marriage, to submit to their husbands. It's a unique calling in women. Okay, now let me, let me take a step back here and address this. I know that in our culture, like this is very offensive for a variety of reasons to a 21st century ear. And here's one of the ways that people try to explain this command away in the Bible. They try to expand, uh, explain it away by saying that this is a cultural command. It, it's reflective not of God's original intent, but it's reflective of a, of, of a first century culture who did not have a good view of ladies. So, so it's, not a, you know, it's not a biblical thing in the sense that it's an overarching command for all people at all times. It's not God's original intent. It's a cultural command, just a first century issue. Okay, now here's my response to that. This command is not cultural. It's in creation. 
It's vetted into creation. Now, when we talk in Ephesians 5, this has been about a year and a half ago, we spent time in Ephesians 5 dealing with this specific issue as it relates to Ephesians 5. And we unpack how this is related to Genesis 1 and 2, how all that kind of works itself out. So I'm not going to rehearse all that here, but I just want to tell you that that is embedded into Genesis 1 and 2, not a first century culture. And, And to take that even one step deeper, submission is not even, I mean, it goes deeper than and is bigger than even creation. It's rooted in God himself. So, so there is a sense in which submission has always existed, that headship has always existed in God. Okay, so, so think about how this works out. God is Trinity. I mean, he's one God and three persons. Each person are fully God. So equal in worth, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But yet in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus, the Son, submitted himself or subjected himself to the Father. So see, this, this is how God operates. The reason it's embedded into the creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is because it's been embedded in God for all eternity, right? You see, see that picture. Listen to Wayne Grudem as he kind of describes how, how submission has been an eternal thing embedded into God. This is what he says. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, the idea of headship and submission never began. There's not a beginning point to it. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all relationships, authority is not based on gifts or ability. It's just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand and voluntary, willing, and joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority, listen to this, submission to a rightful authority is a noble thing. It is a privilege. It is something good and it's something desirable. It is a virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son, Jesus, the Son of God forever. So I just want to remind you, ladies, submission is a good thing. And this is all of us too. Submission is a good thing because it is a God thing, because God designed it. It's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a demeaning thing for anyone in the room. It is a gospel displaying thing for everyone in the room. Okay, so that, that's context. That Within this universal call to submit, there's a specific call that God places on ladies to submit to their husbands. Okay, now I want to clarify what the command means and then what it doesn't mean. Okay, here's a definition of what it means. So clarifying the command here. Defined. Here's what submission is. It's, and this is bigger than just husbands and wives. This is in government. This is in your workplace. This is in all those areas as well. So this is submission. It's the joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. The joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. So it's joyful. A person doesn't have a gun to your head making you do this. It's a joyful thing. And it says there's a joyful willingness to follow. Okay, that means that there's a disposition in your heart. There's an attitude in you that says, I want to do this. I, I am in for this. This would give me joy to follow you. But the disposition says, I want to yield to you. I, I want to follow your leadership. So there's a joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. So when it comes to husband and wife, Ephesians 5, 23 says the husband is the head of the wife. That's in the indicative mood. And here's what that means. It's a statement of fact. It's like calling that stool black or the sky blue. It's just a statement of fact. The husband didn't try to get that role. He didn't demand that role. He didn't ask God for that role. In Ephesians 5, it's, it's simply God saying, this is the role I've given the man and this is the role I've given the woman. 
So it's, it's a joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. And specifically in the context of marriage, we're talking about a husband being the head over the wife, who is to joyfully and willingly follow that leadership. Okay, that, that's what it means. Okay, now with that, let me tell you some things that submission does not mean. Four things that it does not mean. Number one, submission does not mean that a wife is unequal to her husband in value, capacity, or competency. So a difference in role doesn't mean inequality in worth. Now, you hear that? This is really important that you get this. Submission has nothing to do with who's more valuable, with one being superior and one being inferior. Okay, in the context of marriage, it has nothing to do with that. Just like in the context of the workplace, because you submit to your boss doesn't mean that he's more valuable than you, that he's superior to you. So in the context of marriage, it has nothing to do with value, with worth before God. It, it has nothing to do with that. It's, and by the way, I, I would even probably go as far to say that I think in a lot of cases, women are more competent and have more capacity than the men do. In, in a lot of cases, you, you, I'm in a marriage that my wife has more capacity than I do. And I know that. And you probably, if you're a guy, you're probably in a marriage similar, right? And, and so it's not, it's not devaluing that in any way, shape, or form. It's, submission is simply saying this, that in the context of the marriage, it's not that you have less leadership ability. It's that God has not called you to be the primary leader in the context of the home. He has called your husband to do that. Okay, so, so that's what it's not. It has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with that God-given responsibility and roles. Here's the second thing. Submission does not mean oppression. So I think this is one of the things that makes it offensive to our 21st century ears is we instantly, when we hear submission, we equal that with oppression. And a lot of that times that's because we see headship equaling dictatorship. And if headship equals dictatorship, then submission will probably look like oppression. But when... But when headship looks like Jesus laying down his life for his bride, you know what submission looks like? Liberation and freedom, not oppression. So submission is not equal oppression. Number, four, uh, number three, submission doesn't mean the husband is the wife's ultimate authority. So when we say that, that there's a call on wives to submit to their husband, we're not saying that the husband is the ultimate authority over a lady or over a wife. We're not saying that. that. That ladies, there could be a time if your husband tried to lure you in or, or kind of walk you into sin, that you may very well have to say, I cannot follow you into sin. See, submission to your husband stops where disobedience to Jesus starts. So, so we're recognizing that Jesus is the ultimate authority, that ultimately we answer to Jesus, not a husband. And, and so now with that, there's an appropriate way to reject that. There's an appropriate way to say, and a disposition of submission that would say, I want to yield to you. I want to follow your leadership. But in this scenario, you're not allowing me to do that. You're not giving me the chance to do that. See, there's this disposition that says, I want to, but but you're not allowing me to. And and let me just make this, this point clear too. This is clearly defined sin issues. This isn't a preference issue. This is when your husband will be clearly leading you into sin, something that would be disobedient to Jesus. So submission does not mean that your husband is the ultimate authority. And number four, submission doesn't mean a wife must give up on changing her husband. Wives, I'm going to make a profound statement here that I think you'll agree with. There are things in your husband that need to be changed. Agreed? I I hope you agree with that. I know a lot of the men in here, I know they're in need of a lot of change around here, right? 
Okay, now think of the context of 1 Peter 3. It is written specifically to wives with unbelieving husbands. That's the specific context. And so Peter is not saying that you should give up all hope of changing them. I mean, part of the, the emphasis of this passage is that you should be working for their change. So it's not saying that you just kind of humbly just take a step back and hope for the best here. It's not saying that. You can be active in actually working for their change in an appropriate way in an appropriate time, with appropriate words. But but Peter is not saying you you should give up hope for that. He's actually saying you should be at work doing that. That you should be all about seeing the change of your husband and your husband growing into all that God would have him be. But let me give you two ways that you could work for change in your husband. Two ways. One would show you a lack of submission and one would show you great submission, joyful submission. Here's what it should not look like. Let's say you want to get your, your husband praying over your family at night. Good, good goal. Good thing to do if you're a husband. Okay, so let's say that that's your goal. And so you, as a lady, you would look at your husband as a wife and say, um, hey, I don't know if you've read this verse in the Bible, but it says that you should probably be praying over the family. So you probably ought to read that, maybe take a look at that. Maybe that would clue you in, kind of get you into the flow of what you're supposed to be doing here. See, see, there's one way that you could, you could get your husband or try to get your, you know, try to move your husband towards praying for your family that, that would really be uh, belittling him. It would really be kind of berating him, would be nagging him, and would be very disrespectful to him. And by the way, ladies, if you choose that route, you're actually sabotaging what you want to see happen in your husband. But there's another way that you could approach this where you would say, um, I have been overwhelmed um, just by the burden of trying to raise our kids, by trying to be a great wife to you, joyfully following you. And... Uh, I feel overwhelmed and overburdened right now. Do you think you could pray for me tonight? See, do you see how one actually works toward what you're getting for or what you're hoping for? I mean, do you see how one would come behind that and say, I want to work for change in, in, in a respectful, in a gentle way, in an appropriate way. Let me say this again. If you go option one, you're sabotaging what you actually want to see happen. But if you go option two, the the route of joyful submission, then then here's what you're doing. You're breathing gospel air into your home and into your husband so that he'll actually become all that God wants him to be. And you're actually promoting change in him. Okay, so so in submission is, is a want for change. You should want the change of your husband. Okay, that's what submission is not. Let me give you two things that it is real quick and then, then we'll, we'll be done. To clarify what submission is, it's to your own husband. Look at verse one. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to, and then listen to these words, your own husband. It's not every man. It's a particular man. It's the man that God has placed over you in authority, your husband. And, and ladies, I want to encourage you with maybe this picture. I think a joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you this is one of those things that God has, has wrapped a beautiful gift, a precious gift, and he's put it in your lap. And he says, you, you've got, you got a, a chance to do something really precious with this. And ladies, if, if you'll take that gift of submission, joyfully following your husband's leadership, if you'll take that and give that gift to your husband, it will be one of the most precious gifts that you can give him. When he looks back over his life someday, it will be one of the most precious things that he will think about you. And so can I just encourage you that God has placed that gift in your lap and to make sure you're being a wise steward of that gift. He says to your own husbands. And one more here. 
Lastly, it's not dependent upon your husband. Okay, so your joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you is not dependent upon how good or bad your husband is. The context of 1 Peter 3, remember, it's an unbelieving husband. And even in that context, Peter is saying, this command still applies. This God-given responsibility for the woman, it still applies. And listen, ladies, I know this is very difficult, so come back next week and I get to berate your husband. Okay, it's going to get harder for him next week. Because I know that this is really, really difficult. But there is no ifs in this passage. There are no buts in this passage. There's there's no any of that in here. There's not like a, well, okay, so I'll submit but, or I'll submit if he does. There's none of that. And listen, if you're a lady in the room and you're married and you instantly go to an if or a but, like I'll submit but or I'll submit if, if you instantly go there, it's saying more about you than it is your husband. See, when you think about submission, across this room, there are varying degrees of of sinfulness in in husbands. So I want to acknowledge that. But when you're thinking about submission to them, joyfully following their leadership, in the way that you submit to them, listen to this, it says more about God than it does him. See, this is a reflection primarily. You submitting to your husband, it's primarily a reflection of how you think about God, not how you think about your husband. See, when, when we submit to our husbands or when we don't, here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, I either trust you in submission or God, I do not trust you in rebellion. See, th- those are the two options we have as a lady. That God, I either trust you in the way that I joyfully follow or I'm not trusting you. See, when, when you think about your husband, the God who sovereignly created you and made you, sovereignly married you to that man. And so your submission to him is really a test of, do you believe God is reliable and trustworthy in putting that man over you? See, it has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with, is God reliable to you? See, it has nothing to do with, is your man reliable? But is God reliable? It has nothing to do with, is your man trustworthy? But is God trustworthy? And if God is trustworthy for you, then here's what you know. That God has put him over you for your good, for your sanctification, for your growth in Jesus, to make you look like Jesus. You know that God has done that for you. And that's what enables you to say, okay, I I will humbly submit here, even when I think he's wrong. Even when I don't like his leadership. It's an expression of God, you are reliable and God, I trust you in the authority that you've placed over my life. Now, now here's one thing that I commonly hear from women in this, that I am more spiritually mature than he is. Like I'm down the road spiritually and he is not. Ladies, let me tell you how you prove your spiritual maturity by submitting to the man in this context, your husband, that God has placed an authority over you. That's how you prove spiritual maturity. Okay, we'll we'll end with this, with commending the command, and we'll be done. Think about the context uh, really quickly of chapter 3. You have to go back to chapter 2, verse 12 to get it. So flip back to chapter 2, verse 12. This is the context of where we are in the book of 1 Peter. Peter is saying, in light of what God has done for you, these gospel realities that God has, has made you, he's chosen you to be, to be his people, to be a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In light of God doing that, now you get to verse 12. 
In light of God doing that, now you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is saying in verse 12 that your life should demand a gospel explanation. That your life is meant to adorn the gospel. Make it believable. That your life is supposed to make people look at it and actually make the gospel look good to them. That's the intent of your life, to live a life that demands a gospel explanation. And we've been through this the last several weeks that that Peter says, okay, how do you do that? Well, one, verse 13, you submit to the authorities over you, government, you submit to them. You obey the laws of the land. Verse 18, you submit to your workplace. You graciously endure unjust suffering. And then you get to chapter three and he looks at ladies and he says, ladies, I want every lady to look at me right here and we'll be done. He says, ladies, do you know how you live a life that demands a gospel explanation? Here's how you do it. You put your hope fully in God. You hope in God. That's how you live a life that demands a gospel explanation. But when you look at the future, you you be fearless. Worry, anxiety doesn't dominate you, but a fearlessness does. That's how you live a life that demands a gospel explanation. You don't focus on the external adornment, but the hidden person of the heart. You care most about what's most important. And he says, if you want to know how to adorn the gospel, to live a life that demands a gospel explanation, you you seek to submit to your husband. You live in that role, joyfully following, joyfully doing this, willing to follow the leadership that God has placed over you. And and here would be my hope for the ladies in the room, that verse 5, that there would be a day that maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the road that we could look back and say, this is how the holy women of Stonegate used to hope in God. This is how they adorned themselves. This is how they lived a life that demanded a gospel explanation. Amen? Let's pray together. So we'll give you just a second, just to let that, that settle over you. And, and ladies, just want to remind you that, that you, you've got one of two postures today. Over the word, under the word. And my, my hope for you is that, that you're under the word this morning. The Spirit has spoken to you. Maybe even um, shown some areas of unbelief and idolatry and sin in you. And that, that even right now, that there is a readiness in you to turn from those things and to run to God, to put your hope fully in God. And in here in a second, I want, I want to pray over you that there would, be, there would be a fearlessness in you. That there would be a deep and abiding hope in God in you. That, that you would not be pulled along with culture to, to an obsession about physical beauty but you would be primarily concerned with with internal adornment, the hidden person of your heart, that you would take your holiness seriously, that you would be seeking to be like Jesus. And I know that that this one's going to be tough for for some in the room, because some of you have really difficult husbands. But I'm praying that God would press this into you, that that one of your greatest gospel displays is going to be how you joyfully and willingly follow the leadership that God has placed over you in the context of the home. 
And so I want to pray for you. I want to pray for our marriages in here. That if there's crisis mode, if there's, if there's cracks that have been created, that you would not put that off, that today you would start letting people know that. So God, I, I pray by your grace and by the work of your spirit that God, you might work in that way in this room right now. God, will you stir up in our ladies a great hope in you? God, will you stir up in the hearts of our ladies a fearlessness? God, will you stir up in the hearts of our ladies a desire to be beautiful on the inside? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that those things would be evident everywhere. They would saturate their life. And God, will you stir up in our ladies a godly ambition to be joyfully and willingly to follow the leadership that you have placed over them in the context of the home. So God, will you help us in that? God, for our marriages, God, will you build good, strong, God-honoring, gospel-displaying marriages? We pray that in the great and powerful and good name of Jesus that you might. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.